0: So today is our penultimate sermon on James. And uh, we're in today, we've been going through this, we're here near the end of chapter 5, the last chapter, we're in verses 13 to 18 this morning. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit so this uh, passage we're going to walk through the passage first just to gain understanding Uh, it's a triad three Parts, beginning with a question each. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. And then, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And then more details and expansion of that concept of calling for the elders of the church. Now we're going to talk about the first two of those. Is anyone suffering and is anyone cheerful? Later on, but let's begin by talking about the third one. Let him call for the. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil, in the name of the Lord. This verse implies that Christians get sick. It implies that Christians are a part of a church. It implies that churches have elders. It implies that elders have a responsibility to pray for the people of their church. It also mentions the use of oil. What is the significance of the anointing with oil in verse 14? Uh, Some Presbyterians are uncomfortable with this, it sounds too Catholic. Uh, some have even suggested that the oil is for medicinal purposes. You know, really, you're supposed to treat him medically and then you're also supposed to pray for him. But uh, that doesn't seem to be the way, the the point behind this. The same identical language is used when Jesus sent out his disciples two by two in Mark 6 And it says, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So this was a part of the healing procedure that the disciples followed. And James is just reflecting that to continue in the church The oil in these passages seems to be merely the instrument through which God chooses to pour out his healing power. Like a visible demonstration of his grace being poured out upon a person to heal him. It's very similar to many other things in the Bible that are used like this. The the fig cake that God used to heal Hezekiah's boil in 2 Kings 27 the river water God used to heal Naaman in Second Kings five fourteen seventeen, the spittle that Jesus used to heal the blind man in John nine six, the fringe of Jesus' garment which was used to heal in Mark six fifty six and Matthew nine twenty-one. The handkerchiefs and aprons that had been touched by Paul that were used to heal people in Acts 19.12. None of these are medical techniques, nor are they magic. They're merely channels through which God poured his healing power. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that God is against medicine. Luke, the writer of the gospel, was a doctor himself. And Paul encouraged Timothy to treat his stomach disorders with wine in 1 Timothy 5.23. So obviously there's a place for medicine. And uh, the the, the trees are, are said to be, you know, for the healing of the nations. But that doesn't seem to be what this oil is about here. Verse 15, and the, it says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Though this verse uses the language of salvation, it's talking not about spiritual salvation, but about God healing from sickness. And this language of saving is actually... Used often about healing, but it's not translated save in your English translations. It's translated heal, but in the Greek, it's actually the word save, just like here. So this is not a strange thing. Uh, and this pa- this passage, notice it isn't about the gift of healing, which God gives in the in the uh, New Testament to some like when he sent the disciples out two by two, this is about prayer for healing now both of them come from God of course, but I personally think the New Testament leads us to the conclusion that a few of the spiritual gifts in the New Testament, including the gift of healing, were connected to the era of the apostles not prayer for healing, not healing, but the gift of healing, the power of given to a person to heal but that doesn't mean God no longer heals people today and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for healing in my mind there's a sad prejudice in the minds of some against healing especially because of the abuse of healing in some churches and that whole concept, and they just shy away from it. But uh, I think we need to take God at his word and, and, uh, and apply it, and not, because some go to extremes, uh, shy away from it ourselves. So is this, when, when he says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, is this a guarantee of healing? Well, if it was... Think about it. If it was, if every person prayed for by his elders was healed, this passage would be a very popular passage, a very well-known passage. And people would be flocking into churches just to get healed. Just like they flocked to Jesus when he was healing. you know, Remember, he couldn't even fit into the room sometimes because there were so many people just in that rural, you know, way out in the boondocks, rural area, and there were so many people coming out of the woodwork to be healed because he was healing. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. There are even a number of instances in the New Testament where godly, faithful Christians were not healed, even after prayer. Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians twelve seven to ten, where he prayed three times. Epaphroditus's illness in Philippians two twenty five to twenty seven. Timothy's stomach ailment that I mentioned in 1 Timothy five twenty three, and Trophimus in Miletus in 2 Timothy four twenty. The fact is that there are those whom God, in His loving wisdom, chooses not to heal. He has a purpose for sickness and a purpose for healing. And he has a purpose for the timing of healing as well. But the verse goes on to say something very strange. It says to about, you know, it says that prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This seems to be coming out of left field. James has been talking about calling the elders to pray for you when you're sick and all of a sudden he's talking about having your sins forgiven. What's going on? Is he changing the subject? Or is he continuing to talk about this uh, prayer for the sick? Well, sometimes sickness is the result of sin. We see this in 1 Corinthians 11, 28-32, where Paul says, Let a person examine himself. It's talking about the context of the Lord's Supper. He says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died but if we judged ourselves truly we would not be judged but when we are judged by the Lord we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world so you see he's talking about a context where people have been struck with illness because of their bad attitude in the Lord's Supper but he says this is not punishment, this is discipline the fatherly discipline God is using their sickness and even some people dying in the congregation to draw their attention to sins that are being committed and being hidden. This is why James connects sickness with sin in this passage. And why he connects praying for healing with confessing of sin. Because the possibility exists, you see, that the elders of a church will be praying for healing over someone and anointing them with oil when in reality the problem which caused the sickness hasn't really been dealt with. If the real problem is sin then if you really want healing you've got to deal with the sin first. And how do you deal with sin in the Bible? It's through repentance and confession. And so James brings up confession and forgiveness in the context of this prayer for healing. Now, of course it's wrong because we don't can't read each other's hearts. It's wrong for anyone to judge someone and think that oh his his sickness is probably because of some hidden sin. All the elders can do is give a person the opportunity to confess sin when they call the elders For prayer, if there's some sin that the person feels like they need to confess. And so he goes on to say in verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You see, he's got in mind here the person who's sick and asking for prayer is the one who confesses his sin. And the elders who are hearing this one and praying are the ones who pray. That's what he means when he says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This verse cannot be taken out of context as if it just stands on its own. And it says that Christians should be confessing their sins to one another and praying for one another that they may be healed. Not that there's no truth in that, but that's not what the passage means in its context. Confessing sins is how the elders find out whether or not the sick person has committed some sin, which perhaps might be the cause of the illness. And then the passage goes on to use the example of Elijah. The prayer of a righteous person, James says, has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So, you know, it may seem like, why is he talking about the prayer of a righteous person? he's been talking about the prayer of an elder now he's talking about the prayer of a righteous person well theoretically the elder is a righteous person that's why he transitions to that in fact the elder ought to be ought to be an elder because he's a righteous person that's the theory okay now we've walked through the passage let's let me give you a few takeaways five takeaways as we as we uh Look at this passage as a whole And, and uh, that I'd like to share with you First of all is from the first part The very beginning Is anyone among you suffering Let him pray And then is anyone cheerful Let him sing praise You know the fact is that God wants us to come to him No matter what we're going through We might be going through hard things We might be going through wonderful, easy, pleasant things happy things the answer is always go to the Lord with it when it comes to suffering it's very understandable that people would want to go to the Lord then they know that they need help even non-believers often are driven to prayer by suffering but sometimes people don't pray even when they're suffering maybe they're angry with God for their suffering Maybe they sense God's, even a believer, senses God's displeasure in the suffering and somehow concludes that God is against me and therefore doesn't go to the Lord in prayer. Not, he has been blinded to the reality that God disciplines the one he loves and prunes the one who, ones who bear fruit so that they might bear more fruit. It's sad when even believers don't pray when they're suffering. It's one of the great gifts given to God's people. And then, is anyone cheerful? Let them sing praise. Well, you know, when you're cheerful, it's usually because things are going away, going along happily, and, or some good thing has happened to you. And often that's the time when you don't feel the need to pray. You can just enjoy the good thing that God has given. But James wants us to remember that even when you're cheerful, you need to pray. Contrary to what our hearts might tell us in that circumstance, we are needy even when we're cheerful. For a number of reasons. Number one, we need his continued help. We've gotten his help right now. But we need his continued help as we move forward. Just because something nice has happened to you in the now doesn't mean five minutes from now something terrible couldn't happen. You need God's help. Second of all, we need humility and gratitude. Recognizing that our happiness and whatever it is that's making us happy in the moment is a gift from God. You see, gifts are relational the gifts of God, you know when I give my children gifts or my wife a gift, it's designed to be relational. It's designed to have an impact on our relationship, on their view of me and my and their view of my love for them. They're not just random or accidental. When God gives us a gift, it's meant to draw us to Him. To reveal his love for us. To us. It is meant to cause us to love him more. It's a gift that God has given. Is designed to change you. And so when you're cheerful. That's the great time. To come to the Lord and praise him. That's what it's all about. It's not enough just to receive and enjoy. God's good gifts. We must enjoy the giver behind the gift and thank him. Let the gift and the giver's love sink in to our hearts. Plus, one more reason why we need, we're needy in the situation where we've been blessed like that. we need to avoid the temptations that come along with cheerfulness. You know, we don't recognize that's a problem. People don't recognize the temptations that they face when things go well and when they succeed. For one, the temptation to invest our hearts in this world and in things and circumstances of our lives. Number two, the temptation to think that we've got it made. You know, like the man who wanted to build bigger barns... ...who said to himself in Luke 12... ...I will say to my soul... ...soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Or when Jesus writes to the letter, the letter to the Laodiceans in Revelation 3... ...and says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing... Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So it's always time to pray. And to go to God. Especially when you're cheerful. The second thing I'd like to draw out is just the verse 14 on the face of it which is a verse that uh, so many you know of but don't put into practice is anyone among you sick let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord here god has given us the guidance but it doesn't get followed very much does it People get sick sometimes, so sick that they're even worried about dying. But rarely do Christians follow this guidance. Now, of course, you can overdo it. You know, you could uh, you could call for the elders of the church every time there's a you know you stub your toe, every time you get a sniffle, every time you have a little headache. It's it, our sore throat. It, it could be overdone, conceivably, theoretically, but that's not the problem among Christians that I know and in my experience in this church seems to be that there's holding pe- something holding people back maybe it's fear of the unknown maybe it's uh, humbling to ask for help maybe it's uh, fear of the elders laying their hands on you or pouring oil on you I don't know but it shouldn't be an obstacle and we need to take this guidance seriously and not just, you know, there's a specific here, but there's also a general principle and that's the principle of recruiting prayer when we need prayer, you know, when we realize that we really need God's help, we pray hopefully, but we also should be recruiting prayer from others and uh, and that's important. That's something a precious gift that God has given us in the body of Christ. It's one of the advantages of being in the church. You know, when Peter got released from prison by the angel, he went to the house where, in the middle of the night, where people had were gathered praying for him. What a blessing to to be to live in a community of church of faith where you know when you're in prison. There are people that are praying for you. And that's. uh, Something we should take seriously. Maybe this verse. Seems like a charismatic verse. And not a Presbyterian verse. But. We don't. Really if you understand Presbyterianism. It's that we believe what the Bible says. Even if it makes us uncomfortable and so this verse should not th- seem unpresbyterian to us and I urge us all to take it seriously and to and to you know follow it's guidance um we've had wonderful experiences in the history of our church praying for people amazing stories of people being healed and uh and wonderful times with people and people feeling loved but the the burden the um, responsibility does not lay at the, fit of the feet of the elders in the passage it says if anyone among you is sick let him call for the elders of the church to come so you're supposed to inconvenience your elders that's what their job is and if they can't come and, and pray for you if you're sick then they shouldn't be elders I don't mean that you know they can be there no matter when, but they should be able to be available in that way. The third point is has to do with confessing our sins to one another, um, and I just well, we explain the passage of this, and I just want to reiterate that that uh, some people quote this verse as if it's that there's some responsibility given here for all Christians to be confessing their sins to each other and of course um, it doesn't say anything against that it doesn't condemn confessing of sin to one another in other contexts but that's it's talking specifically about one context here and, uh, and so we should be uh, we should not apply it as if it's uh, supposed to be anything more than that but on the other hand it might be good for us, some of us, or all of us, to have someone that we confess our sins to. Um, that is not a, a biblical command, but it is, a, it is a healthy thing, it seems to me, personally. Um, then the fourth thing uh, has to do with the prayer of a righteous person. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, verse sixteen um, so think about this this means that who we are has a big effect on other people. you know we if we pray for someone, it matters whether we're righteous or whether we 're not so when we our righteous people, whatever he means here by righteous, whenever we are righteous people, our prayers have a greater effect and help people more than if we're not righteous. Now, what is a righteous person? Well, um, it's not about performance. A lot of times we just think of righteousness in terms of performing. You know, I have a spotless life but a righteous person in the new testament is someone who abides in Christ who is filled with the holy spirit a person who whose eyes have been opened to how high and wide and deep and long is the love of Christ for them a person who is realizing minute by minute in his life that since God is for him nothing can be against him these are the kinds of things I think we ought to be thinking of when we think of a righteous person and prayer is one of the best ways that God has given us to love our neighbor we're called to love our neighbor you know it's the second great commandment and that's Prayer is one of the great ways to fulfill that duty. And not just to our neighbor, but to one another. We're called to love one another over and over again in the New Testament. Praying for one another is a w- w- great way. You know, people, even in the world, talk about this person, he really wants to be a world changer. Well, the believer, the greatest for many of us, the greatest way we have to be a world changer is to be a prayer. We're, we have a hotline to the ruler of the whole universe. And the world desperately needs the prayers of God's righteous people. And the church needs the prayers of God's righteous people. So it's not enough just to take care of ourselves. It's not enough even just to pray. It's not enough to recruit others to pray. We must also be people who are dealing with God and opening our hearts to God and seeking God first and searching our hearts and repenting of whatever sins that, that need to be repented of so that uh, we are righteous people who can be useful in our prayers that we, give, that we pray for ourselves and for others. And then the final thing is that, uh, you know, Christians understand that in this life we do not enjoy paradise living. We get hurt. We get sick. We fail. We lose people we love. We know that we wait for the next life to enjoy perfect health and perfect harmony and perfect peace. And yet... This passage shows us that even in this life, we're not just left alone to face our hardships. We have someone to turn to. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders to pray. James uses the example of Elijah, the great prophet. And to encourage us that our prayers can also have a powerful effect. He reminds us that Elijah in verse 17 was a man with a nature like ours. Why does it say that? Well, he wants us to know that you know, this isn't some superhero that's made of something totally different and you could never be like that. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's like you and me. And yet his prayers were so powerful that he stopped the rain for three and a half years. And so it is. Prayer is not powerful because we're so great. Of course, prayer is powerful because God's so great. Great. John Newton said, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. We don't have perfection here in this life, we don't have panacea. All that is coming later. But we do have a heavenly Father who cares about us and about the minute details of our lives. We do have a Savior who intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And we do have a great physician we can call on when we are in need. And we are so blessed to have these. At the beginning of this epistle, James urges believers, you remember, probably the most famous verse in all of James count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds and let them produce steadfastness that, they, that you may become perfect and complete but that's not James' final word on the subject of trials today we're reading James' final word he tells us here that it's perfectly appropriate when you face trials to pray not only for strength and faith and God's using them in your life but pray for relief and pray for removal of the suffering and not only to pray ourselves but ask others to pray as well one of the common themes in my preaching and every preacher has Themes that they come back to over and over again I recognize that one of my common themes is commitment I'm sorry, is contentment and faith in the face of suffering and I don't want to take anything away from that it's true and I talk about it often because it's important I don't want to apologize for that but you can take that too far you can take that to the point where you forget that God urges His people to call to Him in their troubles for help, not just for strength. Repeatedly in the New Testament, God assures His people that He is there for them and eagerly waits for them to seek His intervention. Why, even Jesus asked for relief. Of his burden when he was facing the cross. A person who thinks we shouldn't ask for relief from trouble or healing from sickness. A person who thinks faith means accepting all trouble without trying to fix it or trying to ask God to remove it. Thinks it's possible to be more godly than Jesus. And it's not. That's not faith. That's fatalism. Read the book of Psalms, which is filled with desperate, God-inspired pleas for His help. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever! Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Our souls are bowed down in the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That prayer which we sing in Psalm 44 is not an unbelieving prayer. That prayer is exactly the kind of prayer God wants his people to pray when they're in trouble. That's why he inspired it and gave it to us. So, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone sick? Let him seek prayer. And even when God doesn't intervene, even when he doesn't heal, it doesn't mean that he's just abandoning his people to their suffering. Jesus entered into our suffering, remember. His name is at the top of the list of those who didn't get relief from his suffering. Who didn't get healing from his sickness. Even though he prayed for it. And so we know that those whom he allows to suffer have in him a sympathetic savior who knows what suffering is all about. And we also know that in the end we do have a promise of absolute suffering, of absolute healing. We know that sickness and suffering are just for a time For those who are in Christ. For when He returns, we will be raised up in bodies of glory, and there'll be no more weakness, and no more ailments, and no more disabilities. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, you are a great God. Forgive us for our pettiness. Forgive us for our complaining and our grumbling. Forgive us for the littleness of our faith. But thank you that you know exactly what you're doing. And thank you that you do all things well. And thank you, Lord, that you, even in the face of things that seem to be tearing our hearts apart, that you have given us access to your throne room where we can be confident that whether or not we get relief in the way that we're asking for, we know that we have one who cares about us and who hears our prayers and who does not allow us to suffer for no reason. May we find comfort in you, O Lord, and in your great love for us. Thank you now that we can celebrate what our Lord Jesus did for us upon the cross when he bore the enormous burden and faced up to the the great weight of our guilt so that we might be set free. Please, O Lord, meet us here at the table. We need to be with Jesus. We pray in his dear name. Amen.